So we've been studying Colossians for several weeks now, and if you were here last week, Mike talked about and preached on the first part of Colossians chapter 3. Uh, and it, if you were here, it was compelling, right? I mean, I, I talked to quite a few folks who uh, were just moved by the Spirit, moved by Mike's heart, right, for who we are in Christ, right, our identity in Christ. And my, my favorite part of that passage uh, Paul makes the point that we are putting off the old self with all of our sinful habits and putting on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of our creator. He says that in chapter three, verses eight and nine. And so our situation today is to look at what that transformed life looks like in the context of the family. Right, we're asking the question specifically in this text, how does Christ intend us to live together in the family? So the complication here is that his teaching, it, it just cuts against the grain of our culture, for sure. Uh, that is not terribly different from the way it cut against the grain in his culture, right, first century. Now, to be clear, our culture, their culture, very different, but in both cases, God's design, Christ's design for the family, it's distinct, it's unique, maybe borderline weird. Right, depending on where your background is and what you've come from. But we are called to this wholly distinct life as families. We are intended to stand out. Right? It, this implies that our families ought to be just as transformed by Christ as each believer is, right? putting off sinful tendencies individually and as a family. Right? We're intended to reflect who God is by the way that we relate to each other. And so my position is that the, the loving authority of Christ ought to pervade our homes. Right? It ought to transcend the way that we talk to each other, uh, the way that we serve each other, right? the way that we relate to each other. There's really nothing outside the scope of Christ's intention for our families. And so as we study Paul's message, ask yourself whether your heart and your conduct align with his teaching. Right? Or do the patterns in your life, right? the behaviors in your families, do they reflect some other priority? Right? Some other motive that moves you to do what just sort of feels right in the circumstances. I think that the benefits of a Christ-centered home are pretty obvious. Right? They're rich and they're deep. And so when the, when the Spirit takes root, when He begins to shape us, it changes us. Right? Paul says elsewhere that the fruits of the Spirit are love and joy Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Does that describe your home? Maybe on a good day, maybe not. Right? It might sound like something a little more cacophonous, a little noisier from time to time. Right? But with transformed lives that look like that at an individual level, the richness and the call right, for the manifestation of Christ in our families is huge. And so why wouldn't we want more of that in our families? So we're going to walk through the passage that Moy read, uh, just using the roles that Paul addresses. Right, so, so we'll go husbands, wives, children, servants, and then we'll look at how this Christ-centered thread runs through the entirety of the family. All of those relationships. So a few more sections than usual. Husbands, wives, children, servants, and then Christ over all of it. So let's look at husbands first. Uh, his instruction to husbands is pretty simple, right? Chapter 3, verse 18. 
I'm sorry, that's, that's wives. 19, he says, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. As plain as that is, it didn't have much precedent in his Greco-Roman culture, right, in the first century. It's just not something that registered. Some of Paul's teaching, right, which you're going to get into, children obeying parents, that would have sounded normal. That wouldn't have surprised anyone in his culture uh, because the, the point was that you needed a well-ordered home, right? A well-ordered, organized, obedient home was the expectation, and it was really the founding or the building block of society, right? And so part of this would have sounded familiar to people, but men loving their women wasn't. Right? That was a little bit different. That was a little bit unusual. And his characteristic way, Paul doesn't mince words. The, the love that he has in mind here, uh, his, his term, it's a form of the word agape, if you've heard that word before. Right? It, it's sacrificial. Right? It's, it's a giving of yourself to the point of death. Christ said, greater, man, greater love have none than this, that a man would lay his life down for his friends. That's the kind of love that he has in view here. And Jesus uses the same term, right? the same description, the same word for love. When someone asked him, teacher, what are the greatest commandments? Well, he said, love the Lord your God. And he said, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? That's the idea. That's the type of love. So when you let that settle in, loving your neighbor as yourself, when is the last time that you forgot about your own needs? Just sort of lost track of food, shelter, right? Whatever it is that you need, that, that sort of registers pretty easily for most of us, right? The answer is probably never. I'm always aware of my own needs. That's why the husband's love for his wife is so foundational in this passage. You know, guys, she, she shouldn't be far from your thoughts, Right? Just as normally and as naturally as we think about what we need to do to take care of ourselves, eating, sleeping, breathing, right? We don't struggle with those thoughts. That's how we're to be oriented towards our wives, asking the question, what does she need? And there's an important caveat there. It's not necessarily what she wants, but what does she need in the Lord? That design goes all the way back to Genesis 2. Uh, the Lord told Adam, if you remember, he said, it's not good for you to be alone. And then it's kind of interesting where the Lord accentuated Adam's loneliness. If you remember, he brought all the animals to Adam and he said, you need to name them. And so this is a bear, this is a zebra, this is whatever it is, right? Whatever he named. And he figured out that the flesh of each of these creatures was different. And it sort of pulls and builds on this question, am I alone? Is there anyone like me? And so the Lord heightens the awareness for Adam. And then in his kindness, you guys know, uh, puts Adam to sleep, takes the rib, fashions Eve, right? brings Eve to Adam. And you can hear in Adam's voice, this is in Genesis 2, 2.23, this, at last, this is bone of my bone. Right? This is flesh of my flesh. Right? And so that idea of one flesh, right? One rib coming from the man, that's the basis of the creation account for his wife. Right? That sort of oneness, that sort of union, that sort of self-sacrificial focus, right? awareness, attention, preference, 
That's the call. Think about it from the flip side, right? Have you ever been bitter towards yourself? It's sort of a strange question to ask. But that's the flip side of Paul's teaching in this verse 19. Love your wives. Don't be bitter with them. Don't be bitter towards them. And if you're like me, right, a married guy, you may know what sort of damage bitterness and exasperation when you express that towards your wife, right? it, it doesn't really help the home fires burn very well. Right? He says, don't do that, right? For the same way that you would never inflict or portray or somehow try and treat yourself bitterly, don't do it to your wife. In the context of this one uh, flesh relationship, it, it begins to sort of makes sense why Paul would say to the husbands, why he would just forbid this, don't, don't do it, right? You need to be attuned and focused to them. All right, guys, let's shift now a little bit to kids. Uh, there's another prohibition here, which makes you wonder, right? Why do we need this, much, this many repeated prohibitions on how it is that we're acting with our families? Uh, but he's, he prohibits us from provoking our kids, in another translation, he says, don't embitter your kids. And so I think it's worth asking, well, why, right? Why would Paul need to focus on this point not to embitter your children? If you go back to the parents' basic charge in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, there the Lord commanded us, everyone, all of his people, to love the Lord our God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment that Jesus affirmed and then the very next verse, uh, there's this teaching, right? Where the Lord speaking in the first person says, you shall teach these words that I command you diligently to your children, right? You shall talk of them when you sit at your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And so I, I don't necessarily think this is just 24-7, every conversation. The point is that there's a cadence and that there is a steady rhythm. And it's just part of the culture of the home that moms and dads are raising kids to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Who, who wouldn't want that for their kids? But the point is you can't force that. You can't force your kid to love the Lord. You can't coerce it. You can't pressure it. And there's a tendency, right, with this leadership that we have that God gives, particularly to dads, where we can begin to slip into control, right, where we can focus on outcomes, where we can put the screws to our kids in terms of behavior. And there's a, there's a place for training. But ultimately, right, our charge, according to the Lord himself, is to teach them to love the Lord. And so you can't force it. You can't coerce it. You can't pressure the kid into doing that. And so in our sin nature, frankly, it's easy for us to lose sight of that. Has anyone ever been annoyed by their kids, right? Dads? Has anyone besides me ever lost sight of the goal of what it means to raise your kids in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord? where it's a whole lot more satisfying, where's my spoon, right? It's time, right? I mean, right, we go there. We go there because it, we just, you know, that's what we feel, right? But Paul says, don't provoke your kids. 
We have a very powerful ability as fathers to shape our kids' understanding of who the Lord is and who they are. And we can do that in a constructive, godly way. Or frankly, we can damage our kids, right? We can be overbearing and harsh and provocative and have the opposite effect of what we're called to, right? We just have that. We're bigger, we're stronger, we're louder, right? And so if we don't rein that tendency in, Paul says that you'll end up breaking your child, right? Depending on your translation, he says, lest they become discouraged. And that term for discouraged is a broken spirit, Right? Discouraged sounds a little bit, yeah, I kind of had a bad day. I'm discouraged. Broken spirit is deeper than that. Right? It's worse than that. It's the idea where you've set a bar so high, right? or you've taken such a tone that your kids say, I can't, I can't get there. Right? I can't meet that call. I, I can't please you. I don't know what it is that you want. I just can't do it. You're always angry with me. I'm done. I quit. If our call, right, is to help these guys grow up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, that's not what you want. So here again, we can understand Paul forbids that behavior in fathers. Correct, train, discipline, for sure. Don't provoke. Don't break these children. Um. When this kind of shepherding is done well, it's fun to see some of its fruits. I can think of a couple of guys, plenty of guys in the church, but um, in our, our life group, uh, Carrie Keith paid her husband, Sean, uh, a great compliment. She said, hey, you know, our, our older guys, they've moved out. They're thinking about jobs. They're thinking about mates. Um, it's, it's fun to see them call you, right, to ask for advice, right, because they've grown up to a point where they're now soliciting dad's input, and Sean will be the first to tell you he's not perfect, but there's a relationship there where they understand and they share the same goal, right, of reverence for the Lord. And so over time, as dads and as parents, we're, trying, we're training kids, yeah, you need to obey your parents, but ultimately we're helping them bind their own conscience, not to me, not to us, but to the Lord. And when they trust that, you see these types of things. Hey, Dad, what do you think about this? Uh, I think of Rodney Symes. Um, I spend a lot of time working with Rodney. Uh, he is a godly, gentle man. Uh, you see his heart for his family. See his heart for the church. And uh, now, you know, you see his son, Nathan, serving and doing the same thing. Right? And that's a credit to Nathan for sure. But it's a credit to Rodney and Crystal, right, as they raise their kids, however imperfectly, right, in need of the Lord's grace. But you see it, right? On the flip side, when you see broken relationships, estranged children, there can be a lot of different reasons for it, but that's, that's not what the Lord intends, guys, right? And so that responsibility, it rests on us. Now, the message starts to feel a little bit heavy, I think, the more that we let this think in, sink in, excuse me. That's why it's so important to remember the first part of chapter three. Remember who you are, men, in Christ, Paul said that we are a new creation, that we're putting off our old selves, that we're putting on our new selves, that we're being renewed in the image of our Creator through the Spirit. That's where the strength and the clarity for this kind of service and responsibility is supplied. And so as we yield ourselves, guys, to Christ and to the Lord, 
It's not like we just go to the store, get the supplies, turn around, love our wives, raise our kids. As we are renewed in the Lord, it manifests itself in loving our wives, shepherding our kids. You need him for this. Can't do it otherwise. It's just not going to work. All right. Wives, it's your turn. <laughs> yeah. Believe me, I've been reading this passage in these verses going, hmm. Uh, it's interesting to me, right? Paul starts with wives in this passage. I, I don't know why. I started with men, maybe because I'm a coward. I don't know. I started with men. <laughs> Paul goes straight to the wives. I don't know. He was never married. Who knows? Um, but he says very clearly to you ladies, submit to your husbands. Right? Just like he told dads, love your wives. Don't provoke your kids. Ladies, submit to your husbands. Now, in the culture of Paul's day, uh, women certainly didn't have equal standing with men. Whether they're married or not, they just didn't. That's the facts. Right? Uh, it was a given that men ruled their homes. So I'm speculating a little bit here. I don't know how often a woman would have considered the concept of submission. Uh, She really wouldn't have much of a choice. Whether she loved her husband, whether she resented him, whether she was somewhere in between, life was what it was, right? So I just, I don't know how often this concept would have really presented itself to think about submission. But Paul's instruction for a believing wife here is to choose, to choose, to yield to your husbands, right? To give it freely. And the implication is, ladies, you can do a thousand other things, right? Just like raising kids, training them to love the Lord, right? Submission cannot be taken, cannot be coerced. The only way that submission works, by definition, is through a choice, right? That you're making to come under the leadership of your husband. And notice that Paul's justification for this, just in case we want to start rationalizing or squirming or sort of explaining things away, says, submit to your husbands because this is fitting in the Lord. And he makes it plain here, submission is a good thing. It's a permanent characteristic of Christianity. That is Paul's ordering what Christian households are to look like. It wasn't just some sort of compromise with the culture because things sort of resembled submission or subjugation. If that were true, he wouldn't have said this is fitting with the Lord. The Lord Jesus is eternal. The Lord Jesus creates all things. It's his standard and his righteousness and his holiness that pervades the home. Christ is not compromising with the culture. He is not adapting himself to the culture. He transforms culture. And so when Paul says, ladies, submit yourselves to your husbands for this is fitting in the Lord, that's how we begin to get the sense that this is intentional. This is best case, as he describes what it looks like for husbands to love their wives self-sacrificially and for wives to choose of their own accord to come under that leadership. There's an enormous amount of trust, I think, that wives are putting in their husbands, right, to enter into this kind of relationship. But let's just think about this, the way that Paul 
inspired of the Spirit is designing, right, or commenting on what a family is to look like, where a husband renewed in Christ, his whole demeanor, right, the things that he thinks about from when he wakes up to when he goes to bed, what does my wife need? How can I nurture her in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, right? How can I facilitate her growth? How can I serve? And how can I lead, right? That's his charge. And if it came to it, give his life for her. The wife, understanding ultimately that the husband is the servant of the Lord, certainly under Christ's authority, chooses to enter into marriage and say, okay, here's some submission. Not some, here is my submission. That's a pretty precious thing. It's a pretty vulnerable thing. And you put those two together, right? There's an intimacy and a uniqueness to this relationship of self-sacrificial love and service with submission and trust. It's not just, you know, sort of partner shoulder to shoulder. It's one flesh. It's a melding. And it looked different. And it stands out. And it's weird. Certainly in our culture. Right? But that idea of love and trust and submission and leadership, church, what does that begin to make you think of? Where else do we all submit and love and trust a sovereign leader? That makes us think a little bit about Jesus. Right? That's the point. Ultimately, that's the point of marriage. Right? Marriage has got to do with procreation. It has to do with companionship, for sure. It's not good for us to be alone. Ultimately, it's bigger than you and me, right? Or bigger than you and your spouse. Ultimately, it's designed to portray what Christ looks like and who he is to anybody that's paying attention to your marriage. Right? It's bigger than you. That is a heavy responsibility that we enter into when we accept the biblical design of marriage. And not only does it matter how you treat your spouse, right? You're sending a message about what you think of Christ by the way that you treat each other to folks who are watching. How does that settle? Right? How does that settle? We can linger here quite a bit. Right? The Christian image of marriage being the picture of Christ and his gospel, Christ and his church. But we got to keep going. So, kids... Paul's message for you in verse 20, again, just as candid as he's been with the moms and the dads, uh, you are called to obey your parents. Obey. And here again, it's absolute, right? Just the way that Paul describes this, he says, in everything. Now, it certainly helps that home is designed to be the place where your dad is loving your mom and his heart is for her, right? And his call is to help you grow in who the Lord is, to help you bind your conscience, as your mom does, bind your conscience to the Lord. Right? It helps that your mom trusts your dad and submits to that leadership, kids. Right? That's, that's the design of the home. Right? That is to be the foundation in which kids are born, right? to grow up in that environment, learning what it means to submit to the Lord and who he is and all of his character. 
Understand here, guys, kids, wherever you sit, uh, the word here, obey, it's a little bit stronger than submit. Submission is a matter of the choice. It's a matter of the will that the wife gives to her husband. Obey has got the idea of compulsion, frankly, to it. And again, this just kind of rubs, right? Like there are a thousand different caveats that present themselves to our minds. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, obey your parents and everything. Simple. And he says here in this verse, right, verse 20, that obedience pleases the Lord. And that sort of begs the question, well, why would that be? Why does obedience please the Lord? I'm going to say more on that towards the end of the message. Uh, but at a practical level, respecting your parents and obeying your parents, it's uh, like training wheels, right? Because we all grow up subject to the Lord's authority as mature believers, right? That's the goal. That's the design. So differently, there's never, ever been a time where God designed humans to grow up, to throw off all authority, and to be completely independent sovereigns of their own life. Never been the plan. Never. Right? We all grow up in the fear of the Lord. Right? He is our sovereign. And so again, that's the goal. As we train and raise children, there is God-given authority for that purpose, moms and dads not for a thousand other things, right? And so parents, wait, we've been given this authority. That's a powerful thing. Shame on us if we abuse it. I say shame on us. It's worse than that. It's sin to abuse that. Because God has entrusted these little kids to us, right? To grow up where their conception, having come out of your home, is a positive one of who God is of his kindness, of his holiness, of his love for us, of his claim on our lives, right? That's why you have the obedience to shape that vision or the, the, the claim to a parental authority for their obedience. And that's about it, right? We don't have the authority just for fun, right? Just to grab the wooden spoon because it feels good, right? So kids, uh, embrace that kind of training from your parents, don't bristle under it, right? Embrace that kind of training when your parents would raise you to understand and to know the Lord as a friend and as a sovereign and as a savior. It's for your good. It is God's design. All right, let's talk a little bit now about servants. When you read the passage with Moyer, if you've read it before, you might've noticed that Paul spends quite a bit of time addressing servants and masters in this passage, and there are actually more verses on this relationship between masters and servants than there are on the family. Some of the commentators think this is because uh, Paul had in mind a particular relationship when he wrote this letter. Uh, so he wrote Colossians, and he wrote the letter to Philemon about the same time, and there's a, a reference in Colossians where we get the sense that Tychicus and a guy named Onesimus were delivering the letters for Paul, right? Where he was, where he'd written them to the church and to Philemon, who were both in Colossae. Onesimus was a servant, and uh, there was something that had been estranged in his relationship. Right? We think maybe he had run away from his master. Whatever the case, Paul is talking about their relationships and sending Onesimus back to Philemon with the hope that there's restoration. Right? And so that may be part of the reason there's so much detail here on... Uh, on what this relationship is intended to look like. 
little bit more background on the, the term itself uh, for servant or slave or bond servant is doulos. Doulos, right? And so it is translated and has different meanings in different contexts. Paul uses the word of himself. I am a doulos of the Lord Jesus, a servant, a slave. Right? He is the sovereign. He's the one in control. I'm the servant. But in this case, right, as Paul is addressing homes, right, addressing families, it was very common for families to have these bond servants. Uh, slaves came, more history, slave, all walks of life, right, from any, all over the world for many different reasons, right? It could have been the result of one country conquering another. Um, in some cases, it was chosen, right? It was something of a vocation, right, to sell yourself into service for a period of time and then to be freed and then to be released. Uh, so it is different. You may have heard that is a little different than the form of slavery we had in our country years ago. But understand, there is this notion of absolute control between the servant and the master. Um, there's an estimate that maybe a third of the city, right, in Colossae would have uh, owned slaves at the time of this letter, right? some of the church, perhaps, right, having these servants. And so they, they could have served the family, Right? They could have been part of the family business, working the trade, but they were part of that family union. And so Paul gives some very clear, again, very direct teaching to this relationship. And he says, slaves are called to sincere obedience with the understanding that ultimately that sincerity is a function of their reverence for the Lord. And because they are called to work and to serve and to honor the Lord, that can't be half-hearted. And so in the context of working for a master, right, for a head of the household, he tells them there's no room for lip service. There's just no room for half-hearted commitment to the role in which you find yourself. He highlights, right, that for these slaves, for these servants, that Christ himself is their reward now, right? They have the presence if they're believers, if they're Christians, but they have the hope and the reality of Christ coming for them, right? Whether in this life or the next, there is the fulfillment and the reward of the blessing of being face-to-face -face with Christ, right? Otherwise, that whole idea of reward would have virtually no relevance to a slave, right? They, some of these may have lived and died most of their adult lives in this relationship or in this situation. So, hey, you're going to get your reward. What reward? Well, you're going to get Christ, and nobody can take that from you. When he turns a little bit now shifting to uh, masters in verse 25, and then in chapter four, verse one, uh, he warns them. He says, if there is wrongdoing in this relationship, you are subject to the Lord's judgment. Right? And that, that is not to be taken lightly, right? Just like any other uh, person in a position of authority, God-given authority who chooses to abuse it, gonna be called to account. We are subject to Christ as our heavenly Lord. And so Paul instructs these men of the family, the same ones that we just talked about, who were giving their lives, right, for the good of their wives, to treat these servants fairly, to treat them justly, because they are accountable to their own master, right? Again, no independent, ultimate, sovereign sort of responsibility that they have in their own right. They, too, are accountable. So that kind of begs a question, what do we make of all of that? Right? We don't have obvious parallels in our culture right now to what was going on there. 
And it's probably worth more study, right? It's not the focus here today, but it does beg the question, what, what would the New Testament say about the idea of slavery or service where one has control of the other? Just a couple of things to say here. Uh, first of all, Paul never endorses the institution outright. He says that this is a good model, it is a good thing. In contrast to marriage and parents, right, the institution of family, the institution of the church, Paul is talking to the individuals to say, whatever your station in life, understand you are accountable to the Lord. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't endorse, and nowhere does Scripture endorse the institution outright. Right? The overriding goal of anyone in any station, in any role, is submitting to the Lordship of Christ. And then whatever level of influence we might have, we're using it for their good, pointing people back to Christ. And so Paul, I think, is planting the seeds in a very practical way, actually sending back a servant to his master saying, hey, you broke a relationship here that you weren't entitled to. And he appeals in the letter to Philemon for reconciliation between these two. And he even says, guess what? Understand in the Lord, you're now brothers. Right? And so long-term, right, what Paul is talking about here, he's, he's planting the seeds in a way that undermined slavery. You know, shame on us as a church, it took so long, but praise God, right, these seeds that are being planted culminated, right? And we came to a point, ultimately by God's grace, where this practice has been abolished. But ultimately, Paul's focus here is not, hey, you're in a tough spot, you don't deserve this, you need to be in a better spot. He says, your heart, right, your accountability, slaves and masters, is ultimately to Christ. And that was his chief concern. That comes ahead of our comfort, of our roles, of our status in life, whether we like our status, whether we don't. Ultimately, that's kind of secondary. Right? He wants us to be very clear on who it is that we serve in the Lord Jesus, right? And why. So the closest parallel that I could come come up with in our day, I think it's work, right? All of us in some fashion, um, or may have, many of us have worked, and so we may be leading people, right, as a manager, as a supervisor. You may report to someone, maybe the military, there's clear hierarchy there, but the point is we have plenty of hierarchies in different forms all throughout our society, and we participate in them, right? We're somewhere in those hierarchies. So if you're in a position of leadership, right? Managing, supervising, directing someone else. Your calling is to treat the folks that you lead rightly, to treat them fairly, to use Paul's language, right? Or to go back to the second commandment, the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, right? Where your desire and your heart and your mission is not just to make people happy or to entertain them, but to love them with a view of pushing them towards Christ, if you have resources, if you have influence, if you have authority, that's why. That's why. You don't have those things just as toys. You don't have them for your own personal benefit. Right? To, whom, to whom much is given, much is required. If you find yourself somewhere else, right, serving, working underneath someone in a position of authority, understand the quality and the dignity of your work matter, right? Whether you give yourself wholeheartedly to that work or not, 
reveals your regard for Christ. Because Paul's established very clearly that wherever we are in these earthly human systems, everyone is accountable to Christ. And so he says to these servants, whatever you do, work is unto the Lord. He is your heavenly master. Right. So if you find yourself cutting corners, if you find yourself in half-hearted work, just sort of coasting, suggest from Paul's letter, you do not regard Christ the way you ought to. And so that, again, that touches every aspect of work. And when you step back and you look at the rest of this passage, there's no part of our family, there is no part of our work that extends beyond the influence of Christ redeeming and transforming and calling us to honor him. None of this do we get to carve out and call mine. None of it. And so that brings us back to the question, right? There's this Christ-centered thread, I think, running through this whole passage. If you count it up, right? Um, Christ is master or his lordship is mentioned six or seven times in these, in this short little passage. Um, why is Paul so concerned with authority and submission to authority? And I think it's ultimately a characteristic or an attribute of God himself, order and authority. I'll give you some evidence, right? In Genesis, if you remember in the first couple of verses, he called the, word, the world into existence out of the darkness void, right? Or the, the, the void that was formless and void. He created Adam and Eve to tend the garden and to exercise dominion, right? Over everything that was in their charge. And that whole idea of cultivating the garden is taking these untapped potential resources wherever they are, pulling them into order to produce fruit. And they did that as his regents. When God called the Israelites out of Egypt, right? And Moses led them out. He gave them the 10 commandments and the law. And he said, guess what? This is how your society is going to run. You are under law. You are under order. It's not up to a vote. This is how it's going to work when he gave them the law. In the New Testament, right? We studied this in Romans. God establishes government, state government, federal government, local government, uh, for the common good of everyone, not just believers, right? believers, non-believers, but he establishes government as a function to limit and restrain the wickedness that comes out of human hearts and human sin. Right? Just imagine if we had no laws out there at all, none. And it was just a free-for-all Lord of the flies, right? It's chaos, chaos. But the Lord in his grace gives order and authority, right? So that we can have a life that isn't just consumed in that kind of chaos, right? At an individual level, when we come to Christ, we don't come to sort of a negotiating table to talk to him about how this thing's going to work. Let's shape the vision together, right? You come in confession, in recognition of your sin, right? That you own that, that you confess that. And it's on those terms, right? That he is the master. He is the savior. He is the one who is able to provide rescue from that situation. Boy, there's a clear order. There's a clear authority. And that's why all of the apostles use those words like doulos to describe their relationship. And at the same time, the same time, Jesus tells us to call him his elder brother or our elder brother. Right? There's such kindness mixed in with his authority, the way that he relates to us. 
And then maybe one of the clearest examples, well, two more, one's in Acts where Peter gives a sermon and he says, this Christ whom you killed, God has exalted, right? He was promoted, if you will, exalted as a result of his work on the earth. And he said, all authority in heaven and on the earth, all of it has been given to me. Everywhere you look, God designed creation to function in particular ways based on a proper exercise, ultimately of his authority. And as our Redeemer, Christ is the ultimate authority. And in the providence of God, he has seen fit to design different roles where some of us report to others and some of us take direction from others. Not because any of us necessarily deserve it, but because God and his sovereignty designed it that way. We are all image bearers of God, right? We know that from the very beginning. We are created in the image of God. For those of us that are believers, we are all redeemed through the same Savior. But we are not the same. There are God-ordained differences. Certainly men and women, family, children, but even within the society, right? The giftings and the roles that we have, there are differences. And God made it that way. And so I think he calls us to respect his authority and his design and to give ourselves to it. And I hope through meditating on Christ and hearing this message, it's not sort of a, okay. Right? Right? There's so much goodness to be found in him. Right? To bring not only ourselves, but our families under his authority right? And to get in line with the grain of his design rather than continuing to oppose it as if we have better ideas. Because you don't. I don't. Uh, This made me think of Psalm 16, uh, one of David's Psalms. David was a king, more or less at the top of the stack in his culture, in his day. And I love this Psalm where he's talking to the Lord. He says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance and I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Right? So a few final points here as we think about application. Does your family relationship reflect Paul's teaching? If the answer is no, the next question is why? I'm not saying I know, right, that the result of strained relationships, broken relationships, your fault. I don't know that. But we are called to ask that question of ourselves, right? Am I in accord with God's word? And if you come to the point, right, through the leading of the spirit that some of the damage and some of the strain and some of the distance in a relationship, some of the friction is you're doing, fix it. Confess it. Not only to the Lord, but to the one you've wronged. Fix it. But usually, usually a broken relationship, family relationship, a marriage, the fact that it's askew at that level is because your heart is not right with the Lord. You cannot love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and do damage to your neighbor. You just can't do both of those things. So if you have broken, strained relationships and you come to the conclusion that some of that's on you, 
Repent. Confess. Pursue restoration. Many of you might be listening to this passage, kind of like I did, um, as I read it, thinking, yeah, sure. <laughs> you have no idea what I've been through, what my family's like, Adam. There is no way my life or my family's going to look like that. Uh, and yeah, you're right. I, I, don't, I don't know, right? Again, God judges the heart. We look on the externals. I, I don't know your heart. I don't know what you've been through. I know that sin rips huge holes in families. And some of those holes, frankly, may not be fully redeemed and healed this side of the Lord's return, right? We do have the precious promise that the Lord is going to come to redeem, to cleanse, to restore. And he says the old order of things are going to pass away. Right, so we know that that's coming. That's a certainty. But the good news is, right, God in his grace and in his redemptive work begins the work of restoring things now. Right, if you're in a relationship or a family and it's been broken and it's not your fault, right, you have been sort of on the receiving end of someone else's sin, Understand, right, that you're, uh, the obligations that Paul lays down here, for instance, to follow a husband or to obey a parent comes underneath your obligation to obey Christ. Right, so if someone of authority would say to you, we're going to go do this sinful thing, right, we're going to engage in this, you're under no obligation to follow that. Right, because ultimately, all of our allegiances roll up into Jesus, right, for believers, the Lord can bind, he can heal, he can restore broken lives. And some of you can testify to that. Some of you have had that grace take effect in your lives, in your marriages, in your relationships with your family. Right? He is in the business of bringing people back from the dead. Right? And so that's hopeful. Right? And that's real. And by God's grace, that's the union that a believer has in Christ and access to the power of the Spirit to shape and to restore and to come back to his intent, right, and his design. Right, so give yourself to that. You don't have anything to lose. You have lots to gain by bringing yourself and your families under his authority. That's all I got. Uh, if something in this passage moved you or spoke to you, not, not because I said it, but because when we read God's word, the spirit tends to move and apply his word to our hearts and our conscience, right? And that's a grace. And so if you've felt that, don't ignore it, don't squelch it, accept it and act on it, right? We're gonna pray. If any of you want to pray with an elder, I'll ask them to gather in the back. Or if you wanna talk to us about something that's come to mind, uh, that's what we're here for. We would love to pray uh, to be part of what the Lord is doing in your life. Uh, but don't, don't turn a deaf ear to this. Right? The Spirit is kind right, in calling us to himself. Right? So if that's you, act on it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we rejoice in who you are. Lord, it's absolutely true, as you said, that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to you. 
And you also said to those who are weary and heavy laden to come to you because you give rest. Lord, your strength never dwindles. You are never taxed. You supply every strength that we need. And more than that, Lord, you are our sovereign, calling us into obedience and into lives that give you glory. Lord, because you're worth it and because we need it. And so we just ask for the help of your spirit, Lord, in these few moments to move us along those steps of obedience and in submission. Lord, not because any one of us necessarily deserve those things, but because you've said it and you've laid it out in your scripture. And so our heart, Lord, is to be obedient to that, to have our lives transformed by your spirit and to give you honor. It's in your precious name that we pray, Lord. Amen.